are listening to the Ivy Entrepreneur Podcast by the Pierre L. Morissette Institute for Entrepreneurship at the Ivy Business School. In this series, Ivy Entrepreneur and faculty member Dave Simpson will anchor the session. Hey, we just finished a great video of Brad Paisley there in his classic song, Write a Letter to Me. And that's one of our subjects today with my dear friend, Mr. David Bentall. Welcome from Vancouver, David. Thank you, sir. I laughed about, uh, Dave, I laughed about the video. He was writing to himself when he was 17. My book is written to me when I was 30. So <laughs> you, got, you got the theme exactly right. Time spread. So uh, just welcome everyone. I'm Dave Simpson from uh, the Ivy Business School. This is our annual winter classic where we talk to enterprising and entrepreneurial families and we try and share some positive uh, vibes to get us through this. Today, as many of you know, it's Groundhog Day. And if you're a, a fan of the classic Bill Murray movie, you know that Groundhog Day, he relives over and over and over. And many of us in our COVID confinement feel a little bit that way. So we thought we'd you know break the routine and have a lunch hour uh, with uh, some special dialogue. Uh, for those of you that are fans of Wyerton Willie or Puxatawney Phil making predictions about the weather, Spring is actually coming early, according to Wyatt and Willie this morning. So with David's optimism, uh, we'll make sure that uh, we bring you some positive vibes going into the spring. David, our audience here today is our, uh, our class of Family Shift members, our alumni of Family Shift, some of which you wrote about in your book. My students at Ivy and friends of the Ivy groups, uh, people that are interested in learning about business families. So we brought them all here today to, to hear a bit about what your view is on helping next generations. I wanna start though, uh, you tell your family story at the beginning, and I noticed you put your family coat of arms, and it says, aim high, strive hard. And you express that your upbringing was all about that working hard and going for it, so much so that I notice most people write books that have seven traits of something. You found nine <laughs> traits in your book. So you are an overachiever. So start with uh, what was the genesis of, of the book? Why did you decide you want to do it at this point in your life? Well, thanks, Dave. It's so great to be here. And uh, for everybody, it, it's actually funny. You talk about me being an overachiever. Actually, the nine traits are the, the nine areas that I know, looking back, I really lacked in my life. I lacked empathy, curiosity, listening skills, et cetera. So how did I come to that conclusion? Why did I want to write this now? Dave, to be honest, I was on an airplane flying home from a couple of family meetings. We had some very meaningful family discussions, two separate family meetings with two separate clients. And as I was reflecting on the meetings, I thought I'd prepared well. I thought I did a pretty good job of facilitating. But frankly, the meetings hadn't gone very well. And I was wondering what had gone on. And I was thinking about it. I thought, you know, in one meeting, one member of the next generation, one successor seemed angry. And that kind of poisoned the discussion a bit. And then I noticed in one of the other meetings, there was one member of the family kind of seemed like they couldn't forget over a hurt and couldn't forgive somebody. And that had kind of set a tone for the meeting. And I thought, I'm sure glad I wasn't like that. Was I? <laughs> and then I started realizing, that was me when I was ever, I, 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 was, I was unforgiving, I was angry. And so I grabbed the scrap of paper and started doodling. And I noticed very quickly there were these nine things. I was, I was impatient. I was arrogant. I was critical of others. I didn't listen. And I thought, gosh, I wonder whether I could help if I wrote a letter to these younger six of us. 
So, you know, I, I'm laughing because you're saying you thought perhaps you were a perfect role model. And that's one of the things you start the book with is we all have our heroes, mentors, role models, including I, I know how much you thought of your father and grandfather in, in the business context of what they handed to you. But just societally, you have some champions that you looked up to and you said, you know, sometimes our heroes are sending us the wrong message for the situation we're in. So talk a little bit about how you learned a bit uh, from mistakes of what the heroes that you looked up to. Dave, so great. You're absolutely right. My dad and my, and my grandfather were heroes because they were hardworking men. They were men of integrity. They were men of vision. So I wanted to be like them. But as I, as I grew up in my career aspiring to lead, I started reading biographies and I read about Churchill. I mean, he delivered the world from the Nazi threat. He, so what, who, what better leader to be like? And, and one of his mentors was never, never, never give up. Yeah. And then I, as a young boy, when I was uh, 10 years of age, I watched the first Super Bowl. It's coming up on Sunday. I watched the first Super Bowl 55 years ago, all by myself. My mom and dad just got a color TV back then. The pixels were the size of quarters. And, and his, one of his mantras was, Winning is not the most important thing. It's the only thing. So I brought these two ideas to my leadership quiver, and I started trying to lead by never, never giving up and always trying to win. And Dave, if you're, if you're going to war, probably a good thing. If you're playing football, probably a good thing. But in a family enterprise, to be a never, never give up person and uh, winning is the only thing person, that's not very good. And that, that, those are two things that really, those messages really undermine my ability to become a good leader, I think, in our family anyway. So over time, one of the traits that you identified and shared with us early is the concept of humility, uh, being humble. I, I've often talked with our high achieving uh, family businesses in Family Shift and, of course, our hyper outgoing HBAs and MBAs at the Ivy Business School, where I tell them, you know, the cars on the humility highway don't face a lot of traffic, right? There's not many of us that can be successful and humble at the same time. So talk about how humility and being humble is a lesson that took you a while to learn, but, it, but it's a positive thing in the context of family enterprise. Yeah, well, Dave, I think the first thing is I thought humility was the opposite of what I needed. I thought I needed to drive hard and hammer ahead and be driven. What I've come to discover is that humility, properly understood, is not thinking less of yourself. It's just thinking of yourself less. And you know, we often get that mixed up, right? It's not thinking that you're bad, not thinking less of yourself. It's just not thinking about yourself so much, thinking about others more. And I think you know, I, I wanted to lead, so it was all about me, rather than you know, now as I seek to, as an advisor to families, I seek to serve them and help them rather than have them follow me. If you follow, you catch the difference. And so, you know, frankly, it took me get, getting knocked on my, my behind to realize that, that, that trying to make it all about me is not a very good idea. And I think that one of the most fascinating things I read recently was Benjamin Franklin's biography. And he talked about how he was working on his 12. He, he had 12. He had more weaknesses than me. He had 12. I only have nine. He had 12 weaknesses. And then one of his friends said, you looked at his list and said, Benjamin, you got to add, you got to add humility because you are so arrogant and so proud. You bug everybody all the time. And Benjamin Franklin, was, his friend said, you always have to be right. And Dave, he could have been describing me. I mean, that, that, 
Just ask my wife. Early in our marriage, I had to be right about everything. And that was not good for my marriage either. And Benjamin Franklin blew my mind when he said the following words. He said, I decided to deny myself the privilege of ever disagreeing with anyone. Well, that requires a total shift, talk about shift, total shift in thinking. And so I've been working with this idea, Dave, because if we deny ourselves the privilege of disagreeing with others, that makes us more curious and helps foster this humility thing. Well, Dave, you see it differently than me. Why is that? So that's one of the big lessons for me, and it, it made a huge difference to me trying to cultivate that. And your wife appreciates it, I know, because <laughs> yeah. she's writing off a lot too. <laughs> Curiosity, David, was another thing you threw in there. And I'm wondering that in the family business context, when you grow up knowing and being steeped in your own family business, that might actually lead to a lack of curiosity because in, in many ways you thought your career and life path were planned out because you were the heir apparent to be the, the third generation. But you speak about how curiosity really helps you understand that you don't always know better. So talk a little bit about why being curious is important. Yeah, so I was afraid that someone would find out I didn't know everything. Yeah. And so I didn't want to ask any questions because if some, like I'm the son of the chair, son of the chairman, son of the founder or grandson of the founder, like I can't let anybody know I don't know anything. So I didn't ask anything. I, if, if I ever spoke, it was to tell people what I knew, which is the exact, it's the exact opposite of curiosity. And how do we learn? We learn by asking questions. And so Dave, you know, I ran around our company telling people what I knew rather than trying to learn. And it's funny, you know, most professions, whether it be law or medicine or even in the trades, you know, the carpentry or electricians, everyone goes through an apprenticeship period or a residency or a um, period of time where you're learning. I wanted to jump right past that to lead. And I think curiosity is what we need in order to be a good apprentice. And I think family enterprise successors, if we can be curious, dad, why do you do it this way? Mom, why has that always been done that way? We might actually find that they're not as crazy as we thought. They actually might have a good reason for doing things differently. So that's been a really interesting journey for me. And you might even find you're helpful to the senior generation because you ask questions that they, you know, there's a lot similar between a rut and a groove, right? They just keep doing it this way. But if my child asks me an interesting question, maybe I'll look at it a different way. So it's, it's helpful to the family in general. I got to say, uh, I tell my students all the time that your good Lord or maker provided you with two ears and one mouth, which should give you a clue that perhaps you should listen twice as much as you speak. And yet we're trained to get out there and talk and present and pitch. And you have a great story in the book of a guy that I really admire, and you do too, Jim Pattison, a very successful entrepreneur, that really emphasized for you that listening is an incredibly important skill. So talk to a little, us a little bit about how listening is a valuable thing in family enterprise. Well, you talk about Jimmy Patterson. So I was invited to an event, event, I shouldn't say, I was invited to a meeting and Jimmy was invited. And it was, there, were, there were 20 people in the room. It was a four o'clock meeting in the afternoon. And I was the youngest guy. Frankly, my dad was invited and he couldn't go. So I, was, I went in his place. So all these people were senior executives from the city of Vancouver. And we, we were trying to recruit someone to head up a fundraising campaign for the new Vancouver Library. And we were trying to figure out what kind of person do we need to lead this effort. And it was a bit of a high profile position. It was also the, the person who was leading it before had left. So we had to get this right the second time around. So 
the chairman of the meeting kept asking people what they thought. And somebody said, well, we need someone who's synonymous with downtown and someone who can appeal to the wealthy and donors and someone who can appeal to the everyday man, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, I'm the youngest guy in the room. I kept looking over, you know, Jimmy Patterson, a billionaire, well-known to everybody. And he's sitting there silently. The meeting started at four. And at eight o'clock in, in the evening, Jimmy still hadn't said a word. And I'm going, this is, this is not how I would expect this to operate. I figured, but, you know, he'd tell us what to do. And at 8.30, so four and a half hours into the meeting, Jimmy said to the chairman, may I just make a comment? And uh, everybody in the room leaned forward to listen. What, 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 when E.F. Hutton speaks, everyone listens. When Jimmy Patterson speaks, everybody listens. And he said, if, if, if I've been hearing things correctly, I think we're looking for somebody who's knowledgeable or whose name is synonymous with downtown, who's got the time. He went through all the criteria we'd listed. And then he said, if that's what we're looking for, then I think Kip Woodward is the right guy. And everybody went, perfect. We got the check, paid for the bill, and uh, approached Kip Woodward next day. And he, and he did the project, did a fantastic job. And it, Dave, it marked me forever. This happened in 1986. So it's had a huge impact on me that a guy like Jimmy, who's so brilliant, so well-respected, would listen for four and a half hours before he said anything. But then, of course, when he said something, powerful. So I'm trying to be more like that, Dave. So he had respect for hearing the views of everyone in the room, and that makes his comment even more impactful at the end of the day. Yeah, yeah. Huge. Now, you, you move to another thing called empathy, and uh, as soon as I saw some of your descriptions, I could see myself, uh, both you and I are hardwired to fix things, right? Whether that's being a, a, a dad or in business, that if there's a problem, let's go fix it. And not everything in life needs to be fixed. Sometimes empathy means something other than solving someone's problem. So talk to me about your frustrations with trying to fix things for people who didn't really want it to be fixed. Is this the time I talked to you about the word, the stupidest thing I ever said? <laughs> <laughs> so, so my wife and I were living in Toronto in 1985, and we just had our third child, and my wife, Allison, I need to preface this by saying we're still married 42 years, 42 years later, but you're not going to believe what I said. So we're, we just had our third child and my wife was feeling not very fit and not feeling very good about her figure. And so she said to me, David, I'm feeling fat and ugly. Now, she was not asking me for a fix. She was not asking me to fix the problem. But I went immediately into fix it mode and I said, you'll continue to feel fat and ugly unless you get out and run. That was not the right thing to say. And as you can, everyone who's listening will know if you're married, do, do not do as I do. So, but you know, what Allison wanted was my empathy. She was feeling lousy and she wanted me to come alongside her. And instead, I just told her what to do. And Dave, may I be permitted to, to talk about a couple of years, last year, how, what I've learned in 30 years? Because, mm -hmm. yes. uh, you know, last year, last year we had our, our daughter and her husband and their four children. So six, five, six, four, two, and brand new. So four kids under six living with us for two years. And one day my wife, Allison, was feeling kind of overwhelmed. And she said, I'm feeling overwhelmed. And I didn't jump to fix it mode. I'm very proud. I think it's the only time in our marriage I've maybe done this right, Dave. But, but I went in and sat beside Allison on the bed and took her hand and said, I'm sorry, you're feeling overwhelmed. Is there anything I can do? And, you know, it's as simple as that. Uh, maybe not simple, but it's, it's as profound as that, perhaps. 
And Dave, this has been a hard one. I, I, I'm in the remedial class for empathy because this has been something that's taken me a long time to work on. So. Well, as it, it's a big subject, of course, in the United States, that it's a capacity that they felt previous president didn't have. And under our circumstances, Joe Biden has it in spades. So no matter what political spectrum you're from, empathy in your uh, you know, toolkit is something that we should all take away and, and think about. So that don't jump to the solution, seek to understand is what that message was in one of your series there. And, and, and Dave, can I just talk about that in the, in the family enterprise context? Yeah, please. Because uh, research says that members of the elder generation, I think many of our listeners are successors, or perhaps the majority are. And what the research says is that the elder generation requires from the younger generation empathy more than any other thing. What? So think about my dad. What my dad needed more from me as a successor coming along than anything else was empathy. And the reason that my dad needed empathy was twofold. One is if you build an enterprise and then you are later on devolving that authority to the next generation, that's a difficult trick because it's the exact opposite of everything you've done in your whole career, trying to bring power and authority and responsibility to yourself. To give that away, that's a completely new, requires completely new skills. So the elder generation needs empathy because we're asking them to give up the, their, their baby, what they've spent their whole life building. So that's, that's one. And then my dad, you know, he went through a difficult time in our family enterprise, being shunted aside by my uncle. So he needed, uh, he needed someone who was willing to understand and care for what that was like for him. So the elder generation need em our empathy. Gratitude is a family trait that you are uh, a big proponent of. And I think you describe in the book that uh, you, know, you, you grew up relatively affluent, but it's not something you really thought about because your parents were hardworking, frugal people. This is just the way we lived. And you're not totally aware of, of how much better you have it. In my house, that's what we call the F word. The kids are never allowed to say that's not fair because it's not fair how good we have it, actually, right? Yeah. Um, but you talk about an experience where you took the kids down on a, mm. a selfless project to a country that perhaps didn't have it as good as Canada does. And that really brought you guys together. So please share your, your experience with your kids down uh, building in Mexico. Yeah, well, thanks, Dave. So our, our son, we have three daughters and a son, and uh, our son is our second eldest. So I think he was maybe 15 at the time, 14 or 15. And uh, I, I think I was pretty grumpy when I was 15, and my son John was no different. He was, he was pretty grumpy. And uh, so we went down to, to build a house uh, in Mexico, and we spent five days there in the hot sun, building out this wonderful experience, frankly, to go down, you know, day one, there's a little concrete pad and day five, there's a home for a family of five. And so we had the privilege of being part of this. And, and, you know, the girls had, we were all rolled up our sleeves and swung a hammer and, and painting. And it was a great experience. And at the end of the week, we hopped in the van and we were dro drove across the border. And we, first thing we did was stopped at In-N-Out Burger. And as we stopped at In-N-Out Burger, we went in and got, got hamburgers. And our son, John, got in the back of the van. We had three, lay three rows in the van. The girls were in the middle seat, my wife and I in the front. John was in the back of the van, as far away from his dad as he could possibly be. And uh, I remember John saying, you know what's wrong with this family? And I thought, uh-oh. You're I'm waiting for it now, right? You're waiting for it now. And uh, he said, yeah. I, I said, well, what's wrong? I actually didn't want to know, but I said, well, what's wrong with this family, John? And he said, dad, there's not enough gratitude. Thanks for the burger. Dave, I think that's the first time my son had ever thanked me for anything. 
And I thought, you know, all it takes is five days in Mexico building a house for an impoverished family for our son to understand that hamburgers don't grow on trees. I think I need to do this more often. So I, frankly, I've been back 10 times now and I'd like to try and go every year now. And we've, take, we've started taking our grandkids. So one of our grandsons has been, and so we're hope, we have eight grandkids. So I'm hoping all of our grandkids will go with grandpa to build a house and to help them learn what we have ain't fair. Well, it's what we've got. To, it's not fair because we have so much. And we have so much. David, I got to share that uh, in Family Shift, we we had the pleasure of my friend Jeff Beatty, who worked with Thompson Family, Canada's wealthiest family, as their advisor. And some of the students were asking him about whether or not there's a challenge with the next generation feeling they're keeping up uh, with the older generation or whether they got the job because that's their name and, and the, the self-esteem issue. And he sort of had the opinion that, you know, there's so many advantages to being from a family enterprise that you kind of have to get over it. Yeah. And you use a phrase here, successors can never earn what is a gift. So stop worrying about how do I earn this? So talk a little bit about how you came around to that conclusion that the successors have to deal with the fact that you can't earn a gift if your parents are giving you something. Yeah, well, great, Dave. How did I come to that conclusion? I was actually in a, in a private conversation with a young woman who said, you know, I want to earn the opportunity to lead the business. And I said, well, that's different. You, you can earn the opportunity to lead the business by working hard and being conscientious, whether going to school, whether it be getting experience elsewhere, whether it be just working hard at your job. So you can earn a promotion. And then she's, but, I, but she said, but I also want to earn the shares. And I said, that's not possible. If your parents give you the shares, that's a gift. The proper answer is to say thank you, which comes back to this gratitude idea, right? And to, so I think sometimes we get mixed up that, and you know, uh, I remember reading a couple of years ago, Dr. Keller from New York said, you know, New Yorkers tend to think, you know, they're the top of the heap of the uh, evolutionary chain or whatever. And they, you know, tend to think that some people in New York, some people in Canada think that we are self-made men and women. And uh, Tim Keller makes a very powerful observation. He said, if, if you were born in the 1300s in Tibet, in a, out in the middle of nowhere, and you grew up in a grass hut, you couldn't get an Ivy school degree because Ivy school didn't exist. So some of it, we just need to accept the fact we were born at a place and at a time that gives us, Malcolm Gladwell talks about this in Outliers, that how you know, we need to be thankful. Many of us think that we have earned what we've got. And frankly, we need to stop and recognize actually much of what we have, our brains. If you have a good brain, you didn't create that. So Dave, as more I thought about it, we can't earn, we can't earn our place in the world, let alone a gift. Does that make any yeah. sense how I'm putting that? Yeah, thank, thanks for that. Uh, gratitude goes hand in hand with the next one I want to talk about, because at business schools, we don't spend a lot of time talking about forgiveness. Hmm. And at some point in your life, you have taken ownership of the fact that you were an instrumental part of the friction that happened in the transfer of your family business, where your Uncle Howard teamed up with your Uncle Bob to push out the notion that you would be the next leader of the business. And as frustrating as that was for the direct line within your family, with your dad, it was his wishes that you'd be there. Later in life, you said, I spent the time and commitment to go back and talk to my Uncle Howard and say, recognizing I was a bit a part of that and ask for forgiveness. That's an awkward thing we don't talk a lot about, 
But how did that feel for you? And do you have to have a certain comfort level to be able to do that? Do you have to have earned your stripes and be happy where you are already? Or can a young person actually learn that forgiveness is something that we could start right now? Well, it's really great. Just starting with the last part of that, you know, uh, you know, how, how do we get to the place to do that? I, I write in the book about a woman who at age 14, her mom left their home. And uh, she lit, went through graduation from high school, went through university, graduated from university. You know, for the next seven years, she had no word from her mom from age 14 to age 21. And so obviously she was missing her mom in lots of important circumstances. And she said, then her mom picked up the phone and it, when she turned 21 said, hey, happy birthday. I'd like to get together with you. It's kind of go, oh, hold on a minute. <laughs> Where have you been for the last seven years? And, and, you know, it took her a lot of walks on the beach to get to the place where she could do that. So it does require, I think, to be able to forgive requires us to look ourselves in the mirror. And we need to think deeply because it, it's not easy to, regardless who it is, you know, your, if your mom disappears for seven years and comes back, how do you... You can't just say, oh, yeah, okay, that's fine, mom. Yeah, you're, I'm, uh, I forgive you. So it took her a long walk. And what, what helped her, this young woman, Bethany, what helped her to get over herself and be able to forgive her mom was to realize that the pain she was inflicting on herself by being bitter was far worse than the pain she was inflicting on her mom. One of my friends says <laughs> bitterness, if we allow it to grow, is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. Like it, it, does, it doesn't hurt the, you know, I could have been mad at my uncle for the rest of my life and all that's going to do is hurt me. And so Dave, it was when I realized that, I thought, well, actually, this is actually maybe good for our relationship, but it's actually good for me as well. So one of my friends said, David, Forgiveness is actually a selfish thing at one level because it's yep. actually care, looking after yourself. So, but you know, frankly, you know, when I went to see my uncle, uh, you know, it was after phoning one of my friends and I said to him, I think I'd like to fix things with my uncle. Can you go with me? And he said, nope, you're not ready unless you're ready to go by yourself. So it took me a year to walk, to get ready. So I think it does require a long walk on the beach. And, uh, you know, for me, it I took time talking to my wife and my friends, took time praying to be able to get to the place where I could let go. Actually took me in another forgiveness circumstance, writing a letter, writing a letter, all the things I was unhappy about this person and then putting a match on them, putting them in the fireplace, you know, getting rid of all that venom I had. So it takes work. It takes work. Physically getting rid of it so that you're mentally prepared to, to move on. We talk about it. Family business have all the same business problems that any other business structure does, you know, competition moving. Uh, you talk about tradition versus innovation, mm, yeah. but they also have the family layer on top, which is, is really complex. And, and you talk about pursuing something called critical thinking. And I'll share with you that we start our family shift program every year with uh, my friend, Tom Bitoff comes mm. and talks about how the Bitoff brothers get together and remain entrepreneurial, even though they're doing different things but they support each other by saying, this is the tradition of our family. These are the, the good wills and good skills that we got. Let's not throw that away, but you go do what you like to do and you go do what you like to do and we'll support each other. So what does critical thinking mean to you when you help us think about how to push our family enterprise forward? Yeah. Well, Dave, thank you so much. Uh, the, the critical thinking for me is right, lives right next door to a critical spirit. And it wasn't actually, I didn't discover how important critical thinking was 
until I realized how it had been damaged in my life by moving towards critical spirit. Let me explain what I'm thinking. So critical, um, critical thinking is assessing what's going on and figuring out what's wrong and what needs to be done. So my first mentor, actually, as a leader, was Dr. John Stott, who was the chaplain to the Queen of England years ago. And he was in Vancouver when I was 23. And I said, what's the key to leadership? And he said, the key to leadership is a healthy dissatisfaction with the status quo. Not being happy with the way things are. We need to go somewhere else. Follow me. Let's go there. And so I thought, okay, that's what I need to do. I need to figure out what's wrong. And then we can figure out what we need to fix. Well, that, makes, that led me to becoming hypercritical. Here's what's wrong. Here's what we need to fix. Here's what's wrong. Here's what we need to fix. That's, that developed in me, Dave, a critical spirit. I looked at everybody as wrong, and I needed to correct them. Yeah. Right beside that is, is critical thinking, which is what is wrong or not optimal that we could make better. That's critical thinking. So I can give an example from... Walt Disney. Disney, when he was, most of the listeners have been to Disneyland, most of them have been on the Pirates of the Caribbean. And if you have, you'll notice, if you go into the Pirates of the Caribbean, the beginning of the ride, you go through a New Orleans scene where there's some people sitting on the porch and things like that. And Disney, just before they opened the, 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 the um, Pirates of the Caribbean, he, he felt it wasn't quite right. So he brought a whole bunch of staff and said, there's something missing. So he said, does it look right? Does it smell right? Does it feel right? Does it sound right? And uh, everybody thought it was fine, checked out. And then he said, but there's something missing. And then one of the young staff said, Mr. Disney, I'm from the South. He said, in New Orleans at, at night, there would be lightning bugs, lightning bugs flittering around uh, on the porch. And Disney said, that's it. That's what's missing. And so they actually... Honestly, they imported live lightning bugs at first. And then later on, they, they imitated them, but they actually imported live lightning bugs. And Dave, that illustrates critical thinking for me because Disney was not saying who's done what wrong. He was saying what is missing. He was, he was asking questions. That's critical thinking. Whereas David, David 20, 30 years ago would have said, who, who's left out something? You know, what have you done wrong? Missing. So for me, that's the difference. And Brianne uh, Ramsey, I quote her from uh, in my book in, uh, for Britland and Engagement. She talks about in their company, they believe that we should be hard on ideas and soft on people. And that's what critical thinking is about. It's being hard on ideas, soft on people, whereas being having a critical spirit is being hard on people. So that that's, for me, the, a really important distinction. It's easier to celebrate anybody that comes up with some good critical thinking instead of thinking about them as their age or rank say we're all in this to to think together but as you know young people do not have patience david and when i'm dealing with family businesses where next gen say hey when do i get to take over and we often are doing this in our uh, our ivy classes uh and we're looking at cases or videos where the next gen is frustrated that they don't know when they're going to be the CEO. And I turn and I ask, uh, you know, my existing students, well, you know, that internship you had this summer at KPMG or, or Royal Bank, uh, when did they tell you you'd be the CEO? And of course, they don't ever tell you that. But somehow in family business, we assume that 
It's your job to tell me when this is all going to be mine, David. When when I'm the Lion King being held up, <laughs> the, everything the light touches is yours. So how do we develop patience, and what's the downside if we don't develop patience? Well, I think how do we how do we develop patience? Interesting. So I, I when I was doing the research for my book, I actually thought, well, why don't I try and understand what the, what the word patience means? And it was fascinating for me because I think most of us think of patience it means waiting. But it actually doesn't. It actually, the, the Latin root for patience comes from pati, P-A-T-I. And the root word pati means to suffer. So patience is about learning to suffer. Complete definition would be to suffer without complaint or without getting irritated. And I think that, you know, for me, that, that's, that's the deal, right? And so I think, how do we do that? I think it has to do with expectations. I met a, I met a guy a number of years ago who, who's, in his, in his PhD research, focused on human resource relationships. He took a PhD in human resource management, frankly. And I remember saying to him, so you did three years studying human relationships. And I said, what's the key to relationships? And he said, David, I can give it to you in one word. And he said, it's expectations. He said, you know, if you say to your wife, I'll be home at 6 o'clock, can you come home at 6.30? You created the problem because of your, the expectation you created. And so I think the way we cultivate patience, Dave, is to change our expectations. I expected to become president of our family company within 10 years. Why was that? Because my dad told me he wanted me to be president. My uncle was 55. I figured he was going to retire at 65. So I had in my head, I'm going to be president in 10 years. That was my expectation. That's what undermined my patience. If my, how do we cultivate patience? By changing our expectations. If I could say, I will work hard and, and I will wait until I'm invited to take on more opportunity. I'll work hard at what I've got. So I will earn my stripes and then wait till I'm asked. So that, that would change the expectations, which is more like the Royal Bank experience or KPMG, right? You wait until you're given more authority. Bloom where you're planted and then wait until you're asked. Does that make any sense? It's expectation. Yeah, and we often talk about the, the monarch leaders, you know, uh, using that model to say, these are the people that are, are going to die at their desk. Uh, so note to Prince Charles, if you're frustrated with your life, the queen isn't going anywhere, right, until she dies. But then at least it's his choice to decide what I'm going to do with my life. And so we want the next gens to say, hey, carve out something that you're interested in. Go for it and bring more value back to us when you're ready. So the, the patience is a, is a two-way street, but you're saying manage expectations is the yeah. more critical element of that. Yeah, and if I could just offer a footnote, I took two men who I think were great examples of leaders who became CEO of their family enterprises, what they did while they were waiting. So Harry Rosen, you know, his dad, sorry, Larry Rosen, the son of Harry Rosen. Larry, you know, what did he do? He didn't jump into the company and say, Dad, get out of here, I want to lead. He went and took his undergrad degree, took his law degree, took his MBA, worked for a while at a law school and then joined the family company and then patiently waited 15 years after that. So he was just into his mid forties before he became president. So he, he used that time productively. And then the most bizarre example is Fisk Johnson. Most people know of Ziploc bags and raid and Johnson wax and SC Johnson is the family company. Fisk Johnson had a father who was a strong leader. He thought, I'm not going to go work for dad because he'll never let me have authority to do anything. So Fisk Johnson, Dave, took six earned degrees when he, while he was waiting. 
He went and took his master's in physics and his master's in business, his PhD in physics. He took six degrees and then he joined the family company just prior to his 30th birthday and then waited another 10 or 15 years. So I actually think if you can't wait, these two men you know, probably would have had trouble waiting 20 years inside the business. They took more education, both of them multiple degrees, experience elsewhere. So I think change our expectations and do something productive while you're waiting. That's my thought. So folks, I, I'm going to ask David one more uh, discussion point on one of his pillars that he's pointed out here. And then we'll let you throw in some questions if you want to hit your hands up participation feature so that I can see that you want to share something. But I want to finish off uh, with David's last sort of subtitle point was called contentment. Now, contentment, when we're in the business school context, is odd because we think of, uh, you know, creating sharks that have to keep moving, right? Sharks have to keep moving or they die. So if you're building a business, you have to grow or die. That's the kind of thing we teach. And how do I then start saying to people, well, don't worry about, you know, what your classmate got for their signing bonus or how much they're making in New York. Are you happy with what you're doing? What did contentment play a role in your understanding about how to be a happier person? Not only a happier person, Dave, but also more successful. Many of the listeners would have watched the, the Toronto Raptors win the NBA championship a year or so ago. And um, Kawhi Leonard was the superstar for the, for the Raptors, who, you know, who led them in many ways to that championship. And if you, but if you, so nobody could say that he didn't work hard. Nobody could say he was not fiercely competitive, driven to win. But if you watched him closely, as I did, he actually was masterfully content. What do I mean by that? He was content if he gave 100%. That allowed him to stay on an even keel if he missed a shot or made a shot. If he made a shot, he didn't get overly excited. If he missed a shot, he didn't get overly discouraged. He stayed constant because he was content. If I give 100%, I'll stay where I am. And I first learned this from my water ski coach who from an American guy from Florida, Chet Raley, and he went to the U.S. National Water Ski Championships. He was the second seed, so he was the second last to ski. And when he skied, he skied a lifetime personal best, and he set a new U.S. record for his age group. And then the guy after him went out and skied better. <laughs> and so he said, David, you know, I would be a fool to not be content with my result. It's when we compare with others that we foster discontentment. If we focus on doing our best, we can be content. And any family enterprise successor, any family leader, what do we want from our employees? What do we want from our kids? What do we want from ourselves? If we give our best like Kawhi Leonard, if we give our best like my coach, Chet Raley, if we give our best, we should be content with the results afterwards. So for me, it's about doing our best breeds contentment. And the last thing I'll say about it is my, my performance coach, I'm a competitive water skier, as you know, my performance coach says preoccupation with our own performance undermines our performance. The more we think about how we're doing, the poorer we perform. If we're thinking, I can't miss this putt, we will miss the putt. If we focus on the hole, we're more likely to put it in. So the focus is on doing our best and not being focusing on how we're doing. There's a couple of thoughts on contentment. Uh, even a Vancouver guy is a Toronto Raptor fan. That's uh, How about I, like, that? <laughs> I like to hear that. Okay, folks, uh, contribution is a big point at Ivy. So you know everybody likes to get in on things. So I'll throw that out to uh, our family shift and our classmates here to say, if you want to raise your hand, 
I'll recognize you here and we can pass along a question uh, uh, to David. So Tara, if you want to let them do that. Katarina, go ahead and throw a question to our friend, uh, David. I just first wanted to thank you to come coming and speaking to us today. So I feel like I've already learned so many lessons, Great. but probably a question for most of us in our class as we're going out and graduating. Is there any, maybe one specific lesson or like a takeaway that you would suggest us to keep in the back of our mind as we're going to join family firms, maybe joining one or, from our own family or somebody else's family firm? Katarina, may I be permitted to? So, to, so those of you who know me will know that the biggest regret I have in my life was that I worked for our family company right out of university, and I didn't spend very much time working outside of our family enterprise. I ended up, after a couple of years with the business, going to Toronto, working for the Cadillac Fairview Corporation, which at the time were the largest real estate company in North America. And uh, Katerina, if I was to redo my life again, professionally as someone who aspired to lead our family company, I would have stayed at the Cadillac Fabry Corporation until I was invited back. And some of you know of the Demeray family, they own Power Corporation and Power Financial. I remember talking to Paul Demeray one, one day and I said to him, you know, what do you aspire for your children? He's second generation. I said, what do you aspire for G3? And he said, we want our kids, Katerina, to go as far away as they possibly can and be so successful elsewhere that we beg them to come back. And so, Katarina, my, my invitation to all of you is go as far away from your family company as you possibly can, be as so successful elsewhere that they beg you to come back. So that's my first thought. And then the second thought is uh, Dave asked me about my mentors, and I, you know, I was following Churchill and, and Vince Lombardi, and that wasn't very helpful. I would encourage you to choose your mentors wisely. So, you know, we talked about the theme of forgiveness. So Mandela is a hero for me because he was Ill willing to forgive the people who put him in prison for 27 years. So I would choose mentors who can help you to develop the qualities that will make you the kind of people that will be able to get along with those in your family. So those are the two thoughts. Choose your mentors wisely and work elsewhere as long as you can. Thanks, David. Go ahead, Harrison. Hi, David. Thanks for coming to talk to us. I had a question for someone who is not from a, a entrepreneurial family or um, who's not going to a family business after graduation. Yeah. But I was wondering if you had any takeaways from your experience in a family business that you think could help individuals who will be working in a non-family business or more traditional corporation after. Thank you. Great. So thank you, Harrison. So I, yeah, the first thing that comes to my mind is a young man who I mentored for many years. He was a CPA by training, and he was working in a, a very substantial company. All of you would recognize the name of this company, public company now, uh, national company in Canada. And he was getting very frustrated because he wasn't getting the opportunity to grow and advance the way he wanted. And he, saw, and he said, you know, the problems are those, those, those dumb people up at the, in senior management, they're not doing things right. <laughs> if I could just get up there, I could fix things, everything would be better. So he came to me for advice, and I said, what do, you, what do you think I should do? And I said, well, I had that same problem in our family business. I, I wanted to get to the top so I could fix things up there because I felt things were wrong up there, Harrison, wherever, wherever up there is. And I said to him, if you focus on doing a, an excellent job where you are, you will be invited to take on more responsibility. If you are muck, mucking around trying to fix other people's jobs, you're not going to do a good job of your own. You're just going to make yourself unpopular politically or otherwise. 
And so he doubled down on his current job. And it was only a matter of a few months before they said, hey, you're doing a great job with what you're looking after. Can we add a few things to your list? And so they, he gradually was able to take on more responsibility. So, you know, it's, it's a bit like a garden, Harrison. Bloom where you are planted. And then I think you'll be given more responsibility. Do, do with excellence what you've currently got. We have two sons-in-law, three of our daughters live in Vancouver, or all three of our daughters live in Vancouver. Two are married now. And our two sons-in-law, I've told them, same advice I would give you, Harrison. If you want to get a raise, do more than you get paid for. Eventually, someone will notice and fix that. So those are the two things. Bloom where you're planted and do more than we get paid for. <laughs> Adil. Hey, David. I uh, had a question that's, I guess, 50% business and leadership advice, 50% relationship advice. Uh, you were telling your story about your conversation with your wife where you know she didn't want you to necessarily solve her problem. She just wanted you yeah. to kind of be there to listen to her. I think that for most leaders, like in any sort of position, there's just always this need to feel like it is your responsibility to fix things. But then I guess that's not always the case. And how, how do you sort of balance that between, you know, taking ownership and, and solving things versus recognizing when you need to kind of take a step back and just be there for people? Great. Well, you know, the first thing that comes to mind, and I know his, his name has perhaps been sullied quite a bit in recent years by association, but, you know, the former mayor of, of New York, Rudy Giuliani, uh, it was a very, he wrote a book on leadership, powerful. And I, you know, I'm, I used to be a bit of a fan of his. I'm not so, sure, not so sure anymore. But Rudy Giuliani talked about when he was mayor of New York, what he did was he spent his time not telling people what they needed to do, but finding out what he could do to help them, which I thought was a brilliant leadership model. He'd say, what can I do to help you with your problems today? And I think for me, that's a much better leadership model than, than most. Because most of us, you know, I grew up thinking we need to figure out what's wrong, fix it, and go in a new direction. But the people who are on the, uh, on the, let's, on the front lines, so to speak, usually know what needs to be done. And so for me, I found Rudy, Rudy Giuliani's advice to ask others how we can help them was a very practical bit of advice for leadership. And of course, that comes to relationship advice. You know, when I said to my wife, Allison, what can I do to make things better? It's funny, I, I, I met a woman in California years ago who'd been married 25 years and her marriage had ended. And I said, I don't want that result in our marriage. And I took her out for lunch and I said, what's one thing you can tell me? She was quite a bit older than me. And I said, what's one thing you can tell me? Speak to me, my, my mom's gone now. Speak to me like a mother. What's one thing you'd tell me to do to help my relationship with my wife? And she's, she said, every day, ask your wife, what do you need from me today? And what's been fascinating about that is if I ask my wife, Allison, there's three possible answers. One, she'll say, there's nothing I need from you today. And that's a great answer because then I don't, a deal, I don't have to do anything, but at least get credit for having asked the question. Or, or she might say, here's this simple little thing. Can you just do this? So it's a simple little thing I can do easily. So I, can, so I get credit for doing the simple little thing. Or then so there might be something really difficult. But if that's the important thing, then need to focus on doing the important things. So a deal for me relationally, that's made a huge difference for me asking what can, leadership principle, relationship principle, what can I do to make things better? Thank you, Sarah, go ahead. Hi David, thanks for coming. Hi. My question is more so around running a family business and you know the challenges of mixing family with business. So I would assume that family politics escalate when there's a business in the middle. 
So I guess from your experience, how do you keep the two separate? Is it possible and how so? How do you- Thanks, Sarah. Thanks, Sarah. So uh, I think it's important to recognize in a family enterprise, by definition, it's typically not possible to keep family and business separate. And so to actually try and make it, to make a separation where there isn't, where it isn't possible is actually a fool's game. And some people actually try and keep them separate, which actually is, I think, an unhelpful way of approaching it, Sarah. So for example, when I say it's not possible, you know, my father was chairman of the board of our family company and I was an employee, but he was also my dad. I was also his son. So I, we can't say, okay, now pretend you're not his son no more. We couldn't do that, right? Or he, I, I couldn't ask him to pretend you're not chairman of the board. So to try and to say, let's keep them separate is actually a fool's errand. We can't keep them separate because they, because they overlap. So, that, so what I try and encourage families to do, Sarah, is to think about how to wisely manage the overlap. I think the wisest way to manage the overlap is to recognize what hat you are wearing. So for an example, there's a wonderful article written many years ago called Unraveling Communication in a Family, Family Enterprise. And Gib Dyer in his article talks about how we, have, we all have many different hats. So you know, all of you on this call are presumably a son or a daughter. That's a role you have. You're also a student. That's a role you have. When you get a job, that'll be another role. When you get married, that'll be another role. Maybe you become a parent. So we all have lots of roles. And Sarah, the key is to be clear what hat you are wearing. So when I'm having a conversation with my dad, it's probably really important for me. Dad, may I speak to you as a dad? What would you advise me to do as your son? May I speak to you as chairman of the board? What would you recommend I do as an employee? So I think the most important thing is to identify what, and actually use that language. I think that helps a lot to clarify and keep the traffic from getting mixed up. Thank you. Thank you, Brandon, go ahead. Oh, hi, David. Thank you for coming uh, to speak of us today. As I'm also from Vancouver as well, and like your family is very well respected here. I guess one of my questions is because you spoke a lot about feeling content with your own effort and like practicing gratitude. Do you have any advice on how we can practice gratitude on a daily basis? Yeah, great, Brandon. Thank you. So uh, my sister, Helen, uh, who's 15 years old, older than me, Brandon, it's public information because she's shared this publicly. She's 32 years into recovery as an alcoholic. And so she's had to do a lot of work on herself trying to wrestle with some of the demons that she had in her life. And she leads an organization. Some of you, the ladies on this call might be interested. My sister started something called the Avalon Recovery Society. There's three different storefronts where they, they help women to get into recovery from alcoholism. And my sister Helen taught me about gratitude. And she said every morning she pours herself a cup of coffee and she has a little journal. And every morning she sits with a cup of coffee and writes out three things she's grateful for. And that's and what's interesting is uh, that was a that was a beautiful idea from my sister. But then I read a book a number of years ago, and uh, again speaking to the ladies, you might be interested. There's a woman from Saskatchewan by the name of Anne Voskamp, V-O-S-K-A-M-P. She wrote a book that was on the Oprah Winfrey book list uh, five or ten years ago. The book was called A Thousand Gifts, and uh, this woman Anne Voskamp was unhappy often with her life. And one of her friends said, I think you're unhappy a lot, Brandon. So he, her friend said, I dare you. I dare you to list a thousand things you're thankful for. 
And so Ann Boskamp bought a little journal and she started listing the things she's thankful for. And so I decided that I would take these two ideas, the daily making a list and a, thousand, a challenge, a dare to list a thousand things. And I was telling one of my friends that it took me, I think I got to, took me to get 1,094 before it became a bit of a habit. But, you know, if we take time each day to list what we're grateful for, it, uh, it changes us. And, uh, you know, I, I, I have not arrived. I'm at 4,681 this morning. But if we, if we list what we're, it, it begins changing the way we look at life, Brandon. And so I have quick other one final one. I have a friend whose hobby is buying thank you cards. Probably most of you don't know what thank you cards look like, but they're actually available in, in, in stores. And this friend of mine, whenever he travels, he used to be president of one of Galen Weston's subsidiaries. And this friend of mine, everywhere he travels, he buys 10 uh, thank you cards in a pack. And every night he sits down beside his bed and he writes a thank you note to at least two or three people every night. Who helped me today that I want to be thankful for? So there's a couple of ways of cultivating. Fantastic, David. One last one here. Duncan, please. Awesome. Thanks, David. Appreciate you coming in. Found uh, the conversation quite insightful. Uh, two Great, two very quick questions. So the first is around integrating family members into the family business who are not necessarily involved in the operations. And we talked about this in class, but I'd be interested to hear your perspective on that because I know speaking from experience, family business tends to dominate uh, dining room table discussion. And I think that sometimes people can feel left out on that front. And then the second question is, if not going the, the long route and going into a different uh, business before you enter your family business is an option for you, are there ways that you can achieve the same thing or at least get close through other activities? So those would be my, my two questions. Thank you. Sure. Great See, numbers. David, I, 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 another overachieving Ivy person that I say we have time for one more question, and he asked two. So go ahead. See what you can do with that. So, so on, the, on the second question, what I tried to do working in our family company was, it was actually not a bad idea. What I sought to do was to learn as much as I could about the different divisions. So we had companies in real estate, construction, electrical, mechanical contracting, interior design, property management, leasing. So Duncan, if you're going to work in your family enterprise, I would look to try and get as much experience in as many different areas as possible. That's, num that's number one. Number two, get geographic exposure. So we had offices in Calgary and Edmonton, Regina, Winnipeg, Toronto, California. So I worked in Toronto, Winnipeg, California, Vancouver. So get diversity of experience, geography and, and in roles. And the, the other thing that I think is very helpful is don't be too proud. I, for me, you know, big humility has been a theme here already start with doing the, the 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 simple job so back to larry rosen as an example you know he started as a salesman on the floor selling and then he worked in inventory control and then he worked in in the buying group so duncan i would suggest get diverse experience and start at the bottom your first question was just if if people aren't directly involved in the family business kind of how to integrate them or make them feel not left out Sure. How to integrate people if they're not directly involved. Well, so there's two things. One thing is that we all can learn as a family together. So I've heard of one of my mentors, uh, the Gaspé Bobian family, Philippe and Nandy, the Gaspé Bobian from Montreal. They say that families that learn together stay together. So one thing families can do, you, you, you can, so they started, they have three kids who are all Harvard MBAs, all three Harvard grads. They spent three years of family meetings and all they worked on was learning to communicate. 
So we can, we can involve, anybody and everybody can benefit from being together and learning about communication skills, regardless of whether you're in the business. So that's one. I've heard others say that families who play together stay together. And so, you know, I, I know a family from Vancouver, every other year, there's eight kids, every other year, the, 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 the patriarch of the family flew everybody to Hawaii, all expenses paid for a couple of weeks, so they could play together for a week. The alternating years, they could be with their spouse's families. But every, every other week, they play together. And, uh, you know, others say that families that pray together, so, you know, focus on the, the, what you, unites you as a family. So, Duncan, you don't have to be in a family business to play together or to pray together or to learn together. So I would encourage, find things you can do together. Okay, uh, a couple summary things, David. Uh, I met you some 15 years ago, shortly after you were transitioning out of uh, Dominion Construction. And I've got to say, every year that goes by, you're happier. And I've got to think that has to do with your curiosity to meet people, to work with people. The more you meet other enterprising families, the more you gain from this as well. And I can see this in your energy, your quest to be the top water ski guy in the world. I see that one coming true very soon because you're peaking physically as we go along. But I'm so proud that you shared words like gratitude, curiosity, forgiveness, patience, things that we don't throw around a lot at a business school. So on behalf of our Family Shift alumni and our Family Shift program partners and the Ivy Business School and the Ivy community, we want to thank you for the privilege of you sharing your thoughts with us. And we wish you all the best. The book, ladies and gentlemen, is called Dear Younger Me. I'll hold it up there. You can contact me. I can get you directly lined up with David and his advisory firm. And we'll make sure, David, that we spread the gospel of humility, empathy, curiosity, listening, gratitude, forgiveness, critical thinking, patience, and above all else, contentment. Thanks so much, my friend, David Bento. David, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. And if anybody is interested in the book, if you order it through my website, I'll sign it personally for you. Just let me know because we've got copies here at my home. So I'd be delighted. It's really fun this morning. Thanks for the great questions. David, thank you so much for inviting me. You've been listening to the Ivy Entrepreneur Podcast. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player or visit ivy.ca forward slash entrepreneurship. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.